Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from New York. Here we are on West 44th Street, and if you just take a look at this, maybe a three-block area here, uh, and, and we're not even going to talk about all of Times Square, just a three-block area, you've got so much history that you just spend a week, if not longer, just on that three-block area, right up the street of Sardis, all the Broadway theaters. It's amazing. And joining me now, someone who's been on the show before, a great historian, Elizabeth Bradley. How are you? Very well. Thanks I mean, and we're, and we're, I should say, we're in the chat wall. What was this hotel first? It was originally the Lambs Club, which was a theatrical club for some of the most famous actors of American stage history. Uh, everybody. So it was from, a private club? It was a private club. This area is really still a club row for New York City. There are half a dozen at least private clubs, mostly with a university affiliation within a two or three block radius. Yeah, Harvard, Princeton, Yale. The Century the, Club. The Century exactly. Club, of course. Mm-hmm. And of course, to go back to the Groucho Marx line that he would never join a club that would have him as a member, so I guess I'm off the hook. I, <laughs> and I don't think he was a member here, but almost everybody else that you can think of was. But this was the Lambs Club for how many Years. You know, it was the Lambs Club until the 70s when they sold their building, I believe, in 1974. To and it has, and subsequently, it became the hotel. 
only recently, the, the Chatwall Hotel. And then they put some money into it. They did put some money. And the lovely thing about this space is that they seem to have kept a lot of the original decor and the, the furnishings. So it has and the woodwork. That, and yes, the woodwork. and the woodwork. It's a wonderful, warm space. And it has some of that original Beaux-Arts charm that Stanford White was so famous for. And in fact, we're actually broadcasting from the Stanford White Suite. Yes, you can see the pictures of Evelyn Nesbitt all over the room, which are very interesting indeed. Because? They, because they, they show you a less savory side of the life of Stanford White. He was, of course, the most famous partner of McKim, Mead & White, the preeminent Beaux-Arts firm, uh, which did the the second Madison Square, ti- Madison Square building. They did the New York Herald building, the Century Association. They're also responsible for the Boston Public Library, a little further afield, and numerous houses in Newport and Long Island. But Stanford White was known as a serial... Rue, I guess, for if that's the politest word I can we use. We can stay polite. That's okay. <laughs> he was very louche. And one of his many conquests was a young woman named Evelyn uh, Evelyn White, who, excuse me, Evelyn Nesbitt. Nesbitt, whose, whose photographs are up here. That's correct. She never married Stanford White. and she Did was anybody a, ever marry Stanford White? No. I, I, he just, he he just, just went, went from His favorite four-letter word was next. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's a wonderful way to put it. And Evelyn Nesbitt was a young lady who was in the chorus line of many shows, as as uh, is the custom, sort of a Ziegfeld Follies girl. And she's most famously referred to as the girl in the red velvet swing. Ooh. Because uh, Stanford White had a lovely apartment right around the corner from Madison Square Garden. He, he kept one in Madison Square Garden as well. Something tells you he kept a few apartments. He kept a few apartments. And in this one, he had a swing in one of his rooms uh, from which his, his young accompany, um, accompaniments would dangle. Uh, his date du jour. His date du jour yes. would, would dangle from that swing and, and provide entertainment. And Evelyn was the most famous occupant of the swing. So ironically, it's interesting that just her photograph is in here. Any other women in here except hers? Uh, uh, no other women that I recognize. Uh, there, <laughs> and no other women that he would who he would claim. It's it's yeah. true, right? It's true, absolutely. Now, wouldn't it be ironic? Here we are at the Chotwell Hotel in the Stanford White Suite. A man who never married. I bet they've had a few weddings in here, some small weddings. I bet they have, yeah. and, I, and I'm sure nobody realizes that in this romantic setting is a quite a tale of, of intrigue and heartbreak and murder. In fact, murder. Yes, Evelyn Nesbitt did. She herself did get married, and her husband Harry Thaw, who was the scion of a Pittsburgh coal family, a, a millionaire and a real troublemaker, he uh, he shot Stanford White in a fit of jealous pique at the opening night of a play called Mamselle Champagne or perhaps <laughs> Mademoiselle Champagne. Uh, and, um, I'm going to kill you at the Mademoiselle Champagne. Exactly, Mademoiselle Champagne. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, it was considered the very first trial of the century. The, the first now he time shot that, him. Did he kill him? He killed him. He killed Whoa. him that night, and he got off on a plea of insanity, which everyone believed because apparently he had been a, a pretty messed up guy for, for most of his, his privileged life. Wow. So sooner or later, it came back to get him. It did. It did, which makes this an interesting choice for a room in which to get married, unless you have a really good sense of humor, I guess. Or you're heavily inebriated. Right. (laughs) That too. With champagne. With champagne. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
two blocks away in a hotel that if you're just walking up and down 44th Street, you wouldn't necessarily notice it. You, know, you have to actually open the door to walk in to go, oh, my God. It's true. It's true. It's so much more opulent inside and from the street. It but has isn't that a, typical of New York? It is, and it's also typical of the McKinmead and White buildings, their clubs in particular, and, and since this was built as the Lambs Club, so many of their clubs look not undistinguished, but modest from the outside. They have a kind of classical gravity, which is, is part of the Beaux-Arts style. And when you walk inside is when you see the opulent finishes and, and all of the craftsmen and artisan that McKim, Bean White would employ, uh, St. Gaudens and Tiffany, in order to do the, the luxurious finishes that we associate with them. And it's quite remarkable that so much of this still remains. Yes. Yeah. It's very special. You know, I don't know about you, but when I walk into a hotel like this, I'm almost inclined to whisper. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your, your voice level just goes down based on the design of the hotel. It's true. And your footsteps sink into the sort of plush carpet. It, it does encourage that kind of velvet environment. What's the biggest surprise about this place? About this hotel, I, I think the surprise is really that they have have preserved it with so much respect and kept the character and the dignity of the space because so much of Times Square has changed to the point of unrecognizability. It's Times Square was named Times Square at the at the very turn of the century. It became the home of the New York Times, and shortly after that, it became sort of the, the Great White Way and and the headquarters of Broadway. But so little of that original character remains that this hotel is is particularly unique for that now, reason. Now, this hotel is actually one block away from the New York Times building that I remember. Yes. Right on 43rd Street. That's right, which is now Bullmore, a, a very fancy bowling. They turned it into a bowling lane? Yes, very elegant, but oh yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, and then the Times moved over to what, to 6th Avenue, right? That's right, to a very sleek new building, which is, I think, more in keeping with the new Times Square but there are still buildings around the Lambs Club which reflect its past, such as the Belasco Theater across the street, which is a very storied building about the same age. And I think it was 1907 that it, that it opened as the Stuyvesant Theater. And it is supposedly haunted by the ghost of David Belasco, the theater impresario who founded it. No, it's haunted by the ghost of Stanford White running from the guy who shot him in the Champagne. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Yes. And then, of course, Town Hall, which is also right nearby. And that was founded in 1912 with less gilded, uh, less gilded aspirations. It was founded as a kind of literally a town hall, as a place where people could come and debate public ideas at a forum for all where there wouldn't be a bad seat in the house, a very democratic institution. Would you say, and this has been my experience in New York, that you know, if you're in Los Angeles, if you want to see opulence and you want to see wealth, you just drive right by it. You can't miss it. Mm-hmm. In New York, you have to go inside and go up. You really do. You really do. And in some of the most undistinguished-looking buildings, the lobbies are, are what really gave them away. The, the majesty of the lobbies, both downtown and in midtown, it can really surprise you. But that was the, a day, even when the banks were designed that way, to be imposing. It's true. Uh, you know, high ceilings, a lot of marble. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you go into Cipriani on 42nd Street, which is the former savings bank where I opened my first savings account with my mom. <laughs> you know, I still have the passbook, even though I'm no longer at the bank. I mean, you walk in 
in there, you just go, oh my God, you feel so little yes. and insignificant because it was in, that design was intentional. It's true. It's true. I think it was meant to signal that New York was really the Empire City and that uh, America had come into its own. It was no longer trying to ape its European elders. That America and New York in particular was a world capital of culture and art and money. And they wanted their, their big institutions, both private and public, to reflect that. And the lobbies especially. That's right. That's right. And of course, Grand Central Terminal, which is another McKim Mead and White affair. Hey, we have is... we have Jackie Onassis to thank for that. Yes, we do. We really do. Preserving. She really. When you walk into Grand Central, don't look down. Look up. Mm-hmm. It's unreal. It really is. It's yeah. it's so it's just a. It takes your breath away, and it's nice in New York where everyone is vying to be the newest new thing and the, the brightest LED light. It's, it's nice to have something. All right, something. so I have to ask the obvious question. Yeah. If they can save Grand Central that way, does Penn Station have a, have a, have a chance? Because it's so ugly. The old Penn Station? Well, the old Penn Station is where? It's <laughs> the, gone. It's gone. Yeah. It's gone. You mean whether they should save, save the new I Penn I think the new Station. one should just be totaled. I do too. I do too. The the owners. We call are, it the new one. It's not the new one. It's just the ugly one. It is the ugly one. It's the yeah. ugly subterranean one. It's true. Right. But I think the investors in Madison Square Garden feel differently. They're they're not sure. Well, they love the traffic flow it. there. That's they number do. One. They do. And then number two, right across the street, is an unbelievable architectural the, the post office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Which is going to be, I believe, the new headquarters for Amtrak. Isn't isn't that right? It's the Daniel P. Moynihan building. It is. But I think it's going to be a while before we see that happen. If it has to do with Amtrak, it's going to be a while. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, Let's be honest about that. I hope it'll still be beautiful. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go So much history on this block. Forget the rest of Times Square. Forget the rest of the theater district. You can walk maybe 600 feet in one day. That's all. Just 600 feet in one day and not be bored. Uh, and this hotel in particular, going back to the days when it was simply a club uh, and the, the whole Stanford White story, we've, we've been talking about that earlier in the show. And, uh, and joining me now is somebody who knows a little bit about the history of the neighborhood. He's the author of Under the Table, a Dorothy Parker cocktail guide. I love that because she liked to drink. Yes, she did. Kevin Fitzpatrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. So let's talk about Dorothy Parker because she rotated in a, in a radius that was really, what, maybe three blocks from here. Exactly. I mean, she worked at Condé Nast for Vogue and Vanity Fair, which was on 44th Street, just down the street from here. And, of course, The New Yorker, which was also on 44th Sardis. Street. Sardis. Sardis. Um, and all the theaters that she was a Broadway theater critic for were right around the neighborhood. And, of course, Dorothy Parker, uh, especially The New Yorker, was, was made famous because of her f- famous legendary roundtable at the Algonquin. Yes, that started in June 1919, just down the street at 59 West 44th Street. Right, but she hung out, I guarantee you, she hung out here, too. Yes, yes. Um, they didn't admit women to the Lambs, except once it, a year. It was Dorothy Parker. yes. She snuck in. You know she did. You know she did. There was a lot of roundtable members that were members of the Lambs, like Mark Connolly and Ring Lardner, so they would have brought their friends in. So what's special about this block? It's called Club Row for a reason, because there's so many clubs on it. You know, you have the New York Athletic Club, you have the Princeton Club, the Yale Club, just down the street is the Cornell Club, New York Bar Association is here, Um, and it's also a place of a lot of restaurants and places to go. And of course, for more than 30 years, the Hippodrome was on the corner, which was Broadway's biggest ever Broadway theater. That was on 44th and 6th Avenue. 
Now, there's still a hippodrome in New York, but it's not the same. No, when they demolished the building in 1939, it was a parking lot, and then that building went up in the 60s, and it's called the hippodrome. It is. So uh, you heard my introduction, Kevin, that 600-foot idea. I mean, literally, if I'm going between 5th Avenue and 6th Avenue alone, it's amazing. Yes. I mean, they call it the crossroads of the world, world for a reason. And at the time, in the 20s, when the roundtable was in session, there was 80 Broadway theaters. Today, we have a little... Say that, say that again. There was 80, 80. 80 Broadway theaters. Well, and, and we're talking now about Broadway having a revival. And how many are there now? Uh, around 35. Wow. And in 1924, there was 225 shows opening that season. We're lucky to get 30 a year now. Wow. And if you can get tickets to Hamilton, now you're really stylish. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. Talk about Sardis, too, because, I mean, that really hasn't changed. No, I mean, it did change locations at one time. Yeah. But Sardis, it's the home of the Tony Awards. The Tony Awards were cooked up by Brock Pemberton, who was a Broadway producer and member of the Roundtable, to honor his late friend, Antoinette Perry. And that's why they're called the Tony Awards. See, now we know. <laughs> I knew, actually, but you, you told me. <laughs> What's the biggest surprise about this particular hotel for you? I think that it's um, gone back to what it was. I mean, it opened as the Lambs. And when the Lambs moved out in the 70s, it was then... Now, the Lambs is then a club. It is still a club. Yeah. They're now at 3 West 51st Street. So the Lambs are America's oldest acting fraternity and private club. And they're Party. Still in- I'm just saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're still in business, but they moved down, the, down moved east. Um, and then when the Chotwall reopened, they reopened it as a hotel, and the name The Lambs honors the old club. That was and that was about five years ago. Yes. What did they do differently, though? From, from what it was in terms of the architecture. I mean, look at where we are right now. I mean, it looks like they haven't touched anything, which is Well, great. this was a private club room, Yeah. and The Lambs at the time was a male-only uh, acting fraternity. It was a theatrical club, um, similar to The Players, similar to The Friars. Um, do you know the joke about them that George S. Kaufman said? I'm ready to hear it. The players are for gentlemen that want to be actors. The lambs are for actors that want to be gentlemen. And the friars are neither, but they want to be both. <laughs> and alcohol is involved in all three, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And conversation and writing and acting. Um, that's the real hallmarks of those three clubs. Now, you're the author of the Algonquin Roundtable in New York, but you're also the author of Dorothy Parker's Cocktail Guide. Yes. So let's give me, you know, we're standing right here at the chat wall, right? Within a three-block radius of where we are right now, where do you go to drink? There were so many speakeasies. I would go up to 49th Street for Tony's. That was Tony Soma's speakeasy. Notoriously bad food, great wine. Well, that's uh, like Tut Shores. Yes. I mean, you didn't go to Tut Shores for the food. You went to hang out with people. Hang out with people. So Tony Soma was a fantastic uh, speakeasy owner. He started the Knickerbocker Hotel. And across the street was Jack and Charlie's. And Jack and Charlie's, of course, became 21. Ah, okay, so that's one. Keep going. Um, so how many speakeasies do you think were on the block between uh, 5th and 6th Avenue on 49th Street? Four? 60. Oh, stop. No, 60. And in one night, Robert Benchley and Charles MacArthur tried to go to all of them. The ultimate pub crawl. Yes. The ultimate, did they make it? I don't think they made it very far. <laughs> well, knowing who they were, they, only, they probably got out of two of them. That was yes. about it. Then they had to get a cab. Well, at the time, New York had more than 9,000 speakeasies. Um, before Prohibition. So was, talk about the double standard, right? Exactly. Well, you could have a speakeasy in any place, a hotel room, an apartment, a basement, the back of a restaurant. So they just sprung up like crazy as soon as Prohibition kicked in. Was there a speakeasy at the Lambs? 
I don't believe so. Um, I'm not certain for that. Yeah. They had a, they were a legitimate business. They had a restaurant. So um, just like the Algonquin didn't have drinking um, at their hotel during the roundtable era, that could have been. In, but there were so many places to go to drink around here. Wow. That many speakeasies. Wow. But where would you go today now? Today, um, a couple of my favorite places are Flute, which is on West 54th Street. That was Texas Guinan speakeasy. Um, she was notoriously, uh, she was arrested so many times that she made a, a necklace out of handcuff uh, keys. Come on. Yes. Um, the Knickerbocker, um, the hotel just reopened this year. On 42nd Street. Yes. Yeah. That was a fantastic hotel. John Jacob Astor IV's hotel just reopened, and they have a bar on the roof called St. Cloud, which spectacular views of Times Square, and you're staring right at the ball on top of the old New York Times building. It's wow. A great place for a cocktail. But I would, sus- I would suspect, Kevin, that just walking between, you told me how many speakeasies there were, but just walking between 5th and 6th Avenue, even if you want to go all the way to Broadway, even today, there are at least 30 bars. Well, have you been to Jimmy's Corner next door? No. Jimmy's Corner is owned by Jimmy Glenn, who is Muhammad Ali's trainer. The whole bar is filled with pictures of old fighters and prize fighters and boxers. And Jimmy is usually hanging out at the end, and they don't play TV shows and sports. They show old fights on the, on the wall. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, gotta We've been speaking with Kevin Fitzpatrick, the author of Under the Table, appropriately titled, I might add. Uh, a Dorothy Parker cocktail guide. Could she drink me under the table? She could. I think she could. I think she could drink anybody under the table. Well, she was a scotch fan. So unless, me too. Yeah. That's your person. She liked highballs, scotch and water, scotch and soda. Wow. Very little soda, very little ice. She just, she just <laughs> went, she went high test. Yes. All right. Now let's talk about restaurants because forgetting the $5 drinks next door. I mean, this was called the Lamb's Club as a club. It's also now a restaurant. Yes. And that's Jeffrey Zakarian. Mm-hmm. He's done a great job. There's a lot of restaurants in the neighborhood. Um, I work right around the corner, too, and I go to Bond 45, which is in the former... You know what? I've gone to Bond 45. You know, it's funny. I did a book a couple of years ago called um, uh, Flight Attendant Conf- Flight Crew Confidential. It was all the secrets of where the flight attendants went and the pilots went on their layovers because they had a budget. They had, to, they, they had limited time, and they all picked Carmine's. Oh, really? You know why they picked Carmine's? Not because the food was that great. They picked it because the portions were so large, everybody could split it, mm-hmm. right? Bond 45, I have to tell you, I try to go there at least once a month. You know why? For the artichokes. Really? Oh, my God. They've got the best artichokes. Who knew, right? They so you a, like Bond 45. They right? have a prefix lunch uh, for, I think, $34 or something. Which and in New York is not bad. That's a very good price. And you can get in and out quickly, which at lunchtime is really important to me. Right. Now, I've had lunch here at the Lambs Club. It was excellent. Mm-hmm. And you know what I like about it, which is part of what the whole sensibilities of the hotel, it's not noisy. So much of New York restaurants, I mean, it's part of it is like, What? Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody understands acoustics when they build a restaurant. I think that's important. Well, and you mentioned Sardi's. I, I do like going to Sardi's. And a tip is to yeah, go but to when do you go? Mondays. Why? Because theaters are closed, and that's when the actors, producers, and directors are hanging out. So you never know who you're going to see sitting there. Well, they sneak in when they think nobody's looking. Yes. <laughs> so go around two o'clock in the afternoon, and you, you'll Which probably a block see from some, here. Yes. And I like the second floor bar up there. That's very nice. Why? Um, it's very quiet and cozy, and most of the tourists don't know about going upstairs. So now they do. You just told them. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so what's your hidden gem on 44th Street? The General Society of Mechanics and Tradesmen. 
It is what? It is a hidden, hidden gem. Say that again. It's a a union house? It's it's a trade union house that teaches the building trades. So if you want to learn plumbing or electrical engineering or how to run a building, that's the place. It dates to the 1790s. The, the members, it's a public place you can go in? It, they, yes, they have a little library in there, and they do courses and classes. Everyone that is a member helped build New York City. So all the people that run the city have gone through the General Society, all the way back to the colonial area. And it's a fantastic, beautiful, beautiful building, a super library, and the people there couldn't be nicer. They have a great little collection. They do private tours, and it's a real hidden spot. It's next door to uh, the old New Yorker. It's on the... Um, North side of 44th Street. Wow, and it's and it's it's open to the public. Yes, it's called the General Society. So basically, you you don't have to be a member to go in. You can go in and walk around. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't check out books unless you're right. a member. But, but you can, can you hang out in the library? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a great place to go work. It is a really nice place. It's a really really nice place. And, and they of do a lot when of. You're finished working. What twenty feet away? You got another bar. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's one secret. Where do you go for dinner? Where do I go for dinner? Um, in the neighborhood. If price isn't an object right now, I like Charlie Palmer's, which just opened in the um, in the Knickerbocker Hotel. The Blue Bar at the Algonquin, there's a banquette in the back that's away from everything, away from the TVs. It's a very private spot in there. They have a new chef, Chef John, who's really fantastic. He makes a Dorothy Parker cocktail in there, too. Oh, we come full circle now. Yes. Okay, what, now, what's that cocktail? Is that a highball? No, that is... What's in a Dorothy Parker? Well, they have different variations on it. Oh, for, um, after but, the second one, it doesn't matter. But the one, the one that they serve has Dorothy Parker gin. Do you know there's a Dorothy Parker gin? It's brewed in, or distilled in Brooklyn at the New York <laughs> Distilling Company. Of course it's company. distilled in Brooklyn. So it's a fantastic gin, and it's made by the New York Distilling Company, and they, they, they sell it at the, at the hotel. Wow. Okay. And breakfasts? Breakfast. Any of the hotel lobbies around here are good. I like the Millennium. I've gone to, actually, the Marriott Marquis breakfast upstairs. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah, because the view is so good. I mean, you can't... That's Grand Central Station. It's not that bad in the mornings. I've had meetings up there. I get lost in that hotel. (laughs) I do. I get lost at the the Bonaventure in Los Angeles, and I get lost at the Marriott Marquis. I could could be lost in there for weeks. They'd never find me. Mm -hmm. Seriously. There's... um, Let's see. Other places around there, um, the Hilton, the New York Hilton, um, has a good restaurant. I go to a lot of hotels just to you know, take advantage of the good service in the restaurants. Right. You're a hotel slut. <laughs> just double checking. I just want to make sure we got this. And what for you, for someone who's never visited New York, or even worse, like someone like me, who is from New York and doesn't even know his own city as well as he should, let's go from Fifth Avenue to Ninth Avenue on 44th Street. Tell me the one thing other than that building trades uh, building that is like... I had no idea. Um, that's a very good question. Um, if you keep walking, you're going to run into, um, you know, all the theaters. Um, and if you're looking directly um, at the Schubert Theater, the Schubert Theater is one of the oldest theaters um, on Broadway. I know the Schubert Theater well for reasons that nobody understands. My dad, a doctor, took care of the Schubert family. Incredible. So when I was growing up in the days when, when doctors made house calls, my dad made house calls to the Schubert Theater. And so from the age of like seven, I got to go with him, right? And those are the days when doctors drove to the, I mean, can you imagine this? We actually drove and parked in front of the Schubert Theater. You couldn't do that. In the alley, right? Because he was a doctor, right? And we'd go in and whatever was going on that he had to take care of somebody that when he was there and I was there, they said, oh, would you like to see the show? So they put two wooden cane chairs, one on the left row aisle, one on the right row aisle, and I got to see every show. 
Wow. And I was like eight years old. I had no idea how good I had it. Mm-hmm. But that's my experience with the Schubert Theater, which is still there today, and Schubert Alley. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot of events that happen in Schubert Alley. And if you're standing in Schubert Alley and you look across the street to where the old uh, New York Times printing plant was, which is now a row of theme restaurants, that was where the 44th Street Theater was. And that's where the Marx Brothers got their start. That's where Animal Crackers and Coconuts was produced. And that's where the Stage Door Canteen was in World War II. After that was demolished. Really? After that was demolished after the war, and the Times expanded their building, that theater was was removed. It was an old Schubert theater, and they they sold the the land for that building. Well, at one point, the Schubert family had how many theaters in New York? They had almost all of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would talk about a monopoly, right? If you wanted to see a Rodgers and Hammerstein production, it was at a Schubert theater. They they mounted all their you know South Pacific. I remember seeing Guys and Dolls. Wow. I mean, with with I mean. I, I, I'm too young at that time to tell you who the cast was, but I, I, I know those theme songs. I, mean, I, know those, I know the songs of those shows. If Anybody listening to this radio show who has not seen Guys and Dolls, even if it's a revival in the ninth incarnation, go see it. If you walk a little bit further on 44th and go around the corner to 412 West 47th Street, yeah. that was the home of Harold Ross, Alexander Wolcott, and Jane Grant, and that's where the New Yorker magazine was started, in that apartment house, and the apartment is still there. Who's in it? Um, it's a rental. So come you, on. No, you can. It's for sale too, Peter. If you want to come up with uh, eight million bucks, <laughs> you, um, can, you can channel the old days of the New Yorker. Just but by that's renting. the building. Or by buying it. What am I talking about? That's the building where Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald went, and the Roundtable hung out, and they had their own bootleggers. But that's where the magazine was was dreamed up. Wow, amazing! And of course, the New York Times has now moved. They're now on Sixth Avenue, right? Eighth Avenue. Eighth Avenue. Excuse me. Right, in a new building. Right. Fantastic building. Yeah. And who's in the old New York Times building? Well, they're renting out some of the spaces. Um, a couple of um, internet companies were looking to move in, but um, there's a bowling alley on one floor. There's restaurants on another floor, but there still isn't. Well, that's one. right, Baltimore Lanes, of course. Yes. Yeah. they're not in the they're not in the the building itself. Yeah. They're in the editorial wing of it. Um, they have like part of the old and part of the new building. But the cool thing about it is, if you're here on 44th Street, which is perfectly situated here at the Chatwell, just as a hub. You're going to get to see the Great White Way. Just, it's all walking distance. It's all manageable. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. As I said before, we're coming to you from the Chotwell Hotel here in New York. But before it was the Chotwell, it was the Lambs Club. And there still is a Lambs Club. So not to make it too confusing, I've got two guys here with me. The executive chef from uh, the, the Chotwell, Arthur Barada. And is it Barretta or Barada? Barrett. It's Barrett. Barrett, yeah. See, I was already ordering food. I was ordering, order, I was ordering a Barada. That's <laughs> what I was doing. And, and, Eric, and Eric Halgan, guys... Talk to me about the, the, the philosophy of, of the restaurant because it started as the, the Lambs Club as a, as, a, as a club, right? Now it's evolved into a restaurant as part of the hotel. I think the philosophy behind the restaurant is they still want to capture that, that feeling, that club-type art deco, comfortable surrounding with the large fireplace and just straight and quality let's, And food. let's talk, well, before we even get to the food, let's talk about the design because it's, that, it's the banquette chair, it's, it's, that, it's the booths, right? Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think Terry, Terry uh, Despont, who, who did our design here, is really, you know, top, top of the line when it comes to, to capturing that sort of art deco, you know, modern meets historic um, kind of look. And, 
you know, certainly a lot of the guests who come in, one of the first things they see is the fireplace. I mean, it's 18th century. Um, to, to be able to walk into a room and have that, especially during the holidays when you've done, you know, your shopping. And you're a going to working show, fireplace. A working fireplace. I mean, I mean, the fire codes notwithstanding, that's not easy to do in yeah. New York, right? I exactly. Right. And when you actually did that restaurant, did you have to go in there and get it completely redone to get that, that fireplace to work? Um, I don't have the, like, the, you know, 100% of the details in terms of how they, they worked that out, but I know that there was a preservation effort um, that was meant to keep that in place um, and, and certainly build around that. A lot, a lot like the, the other features of the restaurant, certainly the door in the front, you know, a lot of the little details around the restaurant were preserved pieces. Now, Arthur, let's talk about the food now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's always the... The inclination, let's say, of a chef coming in and imposing a new cuisine. That what those weren't your marching orders. No, we're not trying to impose a new cuisine or a, a new style or new techniques. What we're doing is we're just we're just highlighting the quality of the ingredients that we're using. For example, you mentioned the burrata. The burrata that we get in. See, is see how he did it. Nice segue. Go ahead. Yeah. The the burrata that we bring in is imported from Puglia, from Italy, and we get it twice a week. Drove straight over from the airport, and it's. It's only in the country for about three, four hours before it actually hits a plate into the dining room. So we really focus on the quality and integrity of the ingredient that's being served. Now, obviously, we live in a world right now where you can source just about anything anywhere. Yes. Right? And, and it's there that day. So what is it that you're sourcing that you couldn't have sourced five years ago that's really a specialty of the restaurant? For example, this morning, we got this really wonderful Schooner Bay salmon. Um, from where? It's from New Brunswick. And just... I, we were talking about this morning, we've just never seen quality of a fish that, that comes to us like this. You know, it was probably in the water three days ago. It comes in, you know, a tamper-proof box like no other living being has touched this fish until it has arrived at our restaurant. It's salmon. It's not anything, you know, it's not Dover sole from Holland. We're talking about salmon from North America. Well, I've had Jeffrey Zakarian's Dover sole. Uh, I did it on the Norwegian ship that he opened the restaurant Ocean on, mm -hmm. and they did a great job. I'm assuming you have Dover sole as well. We have Dover sole. We actually, um, we have it in two preparations. At lunch, we serve it for one. Very classic, sauce meunier. You serve and it for one? We Thank do. Thank God, because that's a big portion. It is a big portion. You bet. But we also do it for two at dinner, and we do it in the style of that's Grenoble. That's you, you need a flatbed truck for that. We do. Okay. We have special place just for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now I always ask this to the chefs, and you're no exception. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Arthur, what's the one thing you put on the menu? that you thought, man, this is going to be the best, most popular dish on the menu, and it tanked. And then what's the one dish you say, who's going to order this, and you can't keep it in stock because everybody wants it? Yeah, that's, we, um, we did an experiment last year where we did a torsion of ankimo. Ankimo is um, the Japanese term for monkfish liver. Say and that we, again? Yeah, monkfish liver. Yeah, so yeah we, sign me up. <clears throat> Not. We, we prepared yeah. it like we would do a classical foie gras torsion. Poached it. I only it want monkfish done in the monkfish liver done in the classical way. You understand that, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was just something that we got in. We wanted to have fun with, play around with. And what did and you it call it on the menu? What did you call it on the menu? Torsion of Ankimo. We served it with turnips. And did anybody ask what it was, or they just wanted to order it? Um, you know, surprisingly, a lot of people knew what it was, and that's why the sales did so well. We couldn't believe how quickly it took off. Wow. Okay. So that's the one that worked. That worked. Okay. What's the one that didn't work? You know, we struggle to sell lobster here at dinner time. We do this beautiful butter poached Nova Scotia lobster tail with some house made ricotta nudies, matsutake mushrooms. And I, you know, people just aren't biting for it. They're not taking it. Well, maybe because they feel they can get lobster anywhere. But, maybe. That, but the monkfish liver, come on. You, you got the market cornered. You know, in Midtown, we definitely have that market corner. What do you mean, Midtown? <laughs> How about the Bronx? I think you have the market corner for that one in the Bronx, too. 
Maybe. What's the one thing in terms of the design of the, of the room that you'd like to see better or that you're not going to change at all? I mean, me, me personally, I, I think that, you know, we've been here for four years now. You know, every time I go into the room, there isn't really much that I would change. Um, I think I'll tell you what I like about the room. It's sure. not noisy. It's, it's right. It's the right level. I think, yeah. I think the acoustics are, are very sensible for what we, you know, the, the market that we attract, which is very business power lunch during the day. And, and certainly at night, there's that feel of I'm getting ready to go to the theater. Um, the, the room in its essence captures that. I think better than a lot of rooms that I can think of in New York City, just in terms of when you walk in, you feel, you know, like you're in the Charlie Chaplin days sitting by the fireplace and you want to go have dinner and go see the show. Um, I think the room achieves that. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. He's the frugal traveler columnist of the New York Times, and uh, what a good guy. Seth Kugel, how are you, man? Uh, so you knew that I live in Queens. Wow, have you been stalking me? I have, yes, and, <laughs> and, and, and we're going to walk you to another borough. <laughs> By the way, it's not a horrible idea to stay in Queens. The, the hotels in Long Island City are one stop away from Midtown. You see, people don't understand this. You know, when people say, when they don't understand New York, or oh, where are you staying? I want to stay in Midtown. Really? You're paying such a premium for that. I said, listen. You go to Brooklyn, you go to Queens, look at the subway system, you're one or two stops, maybe three away from Midtown, and you're paying substantially less. Yeah, well, Long Island City, the hotels are really, really cheap, like half as much as they are in Midtown, so that's my number one recommendation these days. Also, I live in Queens, so then you can come visit me, and Queens, of course, has great cheap food, too. Yeah, but you charge for, be take, for being taken out to dinner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, speaking about frugal, uh, I love what you do with the hotel concierge is where you go to them and say, hey... You know, plan for me what? Uh, plan for me a $1,000 day as if I am a newcomer to the city. Uh, what's, what would you suggest I do if I have $1,000 to spend? Which, of course, is much more than I would ever spend for my column. Uh, so then I take their day. Yes, we've read your expense report. So. <laughs> I take their day. I mean, $1,000, that's like a, a week for me or more, probably two weeks. Uh, take their recommendations and then I try to tweak them into a $100 day. So in other words, I'm, if they send me to some very luxurious three-star Michelin restaurant serving the finest of local uh, produce or whatever, you know, the sort of local ingredients right. farm to table, then I try to find like a street market that has a great stand that sells farm local to product. table, yeah, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of how it works. And you've been able to do it every time. Yeah, I have. Well, you can do, you know, you can do anything on any budget, uh, not anything, but you can have a great time on any budget in in any major city. The thing about major cities is there's so many free things to do, and there's always some sort of cheap street food or immigrant neighborhood with great food that I love to do these exercises. For a long time I did $100 weekends in in certain cities, and I'm not not, gonna, not in New York. Yeah, sure I did it in New York. We're, of course, you okay. can't oh, stay. Wait, no, wait, no, 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 wait, not including wait, lodging. Okay. You couldn't even do that in Queens. Not including lodging. These, That's that, what I'm the, saying, right. Okay, just double-checking. Well, if you, if you are a couch-surfing type person, then it, it could actually include lodging because couch-surfing yes. is essentially free, um, although you should get your host a gift. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whenever I say couch-surfing is free, couch-surfing people write to me and say, we don't like you to call it free because it's, it's an exchange. You're, also, you're giving your own 
house up to other people and then you, they you're paying it forward house. you're paying it forward exactly that exactly that's right but um yeah so um i lost my train of thought uh no but the whole the hundred dollar weekend oh the hundred dollar weekend sure so um and it's amazing that there are so many free things to do in every great major city that you have to end up paying for food and you have to pay a little bit for public transportation and maybe i always try to find like a 15 dollar theater experience of some kind to go to uh, but there's also great cheap food as well so you can really do a weekend for a hundred dollars now would you would i if i were on my own i probably wouldn't but it's kind of a thought exercise to show just how ch much cheaper people can travel and that's the idea with a thousand dollars turning into a hundred dollars right, with just as rich an experience Yes, uh, sometimes even better. Even better. Uh, you know, with when I did it in London, uh, one thing I noticed is that the thousand of the thousand dollars, which actually is not that much in London, no, it's not. Out, but uh, you know, the concierge who was great um, uh, at the St James Hotel, which is a very small sort of great cult. bar, great oh, bar. Yeah. Okay, yeah. obviously I couldn't afford to have a drink there, but um, if they, um, uh, she suggested I go by taxi everywhere by cab, right? And already that's an incredible amount of money. And whereas taking the tube is so great and such a great experience, it's definitely a richer experience than taking a cab just to begin with. Oh, sure. Now, you just got back from Indonesia. I did. Now, there's a country that you can find great bargains. Indonesia is like the cheapest country I have ever been to, I think. I mean, I realize that there are cheap places around the world. And you know what? Let's, let's not call it cheap. Call it inexpensive. Sure, sure. I mean, it's uh, the lodging is uh, amazing. I, I was in, even, even in a place like... Um, Bali, which is, people, some people don't even know it's in Indonesia, right? They but know. it's the most expensive destination in Indonesia. I stayed in a room in a gorgeous, almost like temple-like setting for $9 a night. And by the way, the first night I went, I stayed in an actual sort of luxurious place for like $25 a night. Of course, you do have to get there, but the if you live in Australia and you listen to this online... Obviously. You're there. They already well. They, oh, they already, already know. know. They, they already know. They've been going there for years. Uh, but I did stuff like in Papua. Uh, I just hiked through the, the villages in the Balian Valley, and there, there's there's no electricity. There's there's it's a sort of an old-fashioned way of living. But you can sort of stay on the floor of one of their homes for you know like six dollars a night, and they even feed you. Although you know the food is not necessarily the greatest, but. <laughs> All right, so the food's not necessarily that great. The food, yeah. Well, I mean, I love, I like, no, oh, no, in Papua, in Papua, that's what it's I'm not saying, right? Yeah, because it's a very, and and these are people that they don't eat meat except for pork when there's a big ceremony. So it's mostly sort of sweet potatoes cooked over a fire and and some vegetables. Uh, but it's a great experience. I mean, these are. Um, uh, it's hard to get to, but it's a great experience. You go hiking into the mountains and you come across these villages and it's, uh, you know, uh, someone, a very unpolitically correct person would call it kind of a primitive way of living. But it, it, these folks do sort of have cell phones and, and things like that. But they actually, to get a cell phone signal, the place I was, they have to walk, hike up the mountain. Right. And the thing is, they're not only doing the cell phone; they're watching reruns of Hawaii Five O too. Yeah, exactly. Well, they they have a the one yeah they have a TV with DVDs, right? Right, they and they also have it wired to an automobile battery. I mean, they they've got it figured out. <laughs> that's right. That's they, right. They're way ahead that's of us in terms right. of their cultural appreciation of the crap we send them. That's completely <laughs> correct. Seth Kugel from the New York Times. He writes the Frugal Traveler column, and uh, always great to see you, man. All right, thank you. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger, now ride a 
Now, everybody, everywhere you go, I don't care, maybe the exception of a Motel 6, everybody claims they have a spa. And then you go there, and they do have a sort of spa, and they're all doing the same thing. Uh, and yet, every once in a while, you come across a place that's doing something a little bit differently, simply because, not because they just want to be different, but they want to, they want to do something better. One of those places is here, the Red Door at the Chotwall. And joining me now, we have uh, Nicole Morris and Audrey Romagnolo. Did I get it right? You did. Thank you. Or should I say it the way you say it? Audrey, Audrey Romagnolo. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it. We're in New York. Come on. Right? I like both ways. Okay, great. So what are you guys... Let me, let me start out with my, with my sort of like devil's advocate thing. Ever notice that everybody at a spa whispers? It's like you're all in the witness relocation program. Sort of like you walk in the spa and they go, Hi. Just how about hello? Let's go, oh, hi, we're in a spa. We're gonna do I get that part. But now let's get beyond that in terms of what are you doing differently here than other spas? Well, I can speak to that. The wonderful thing about what's going on right now in this industry and what is taking place with the Chatwall Hotel and Red Door is a whole wellness experience. It is a whole sensorial from start to finish the moment that you come into the Chatwall uh, until you leave, you have not just come in and stayed overnight in New York in a beautiful hotel. You and had a treatment. And had a treatment. Yeah. Uh, you come into an urban sanctuary, so you don't even feel like you're in New York City. It is an urban oasis. It's your own private location. The point of difference here is you can come in with a friend. You can come by yourself. There isn't a hustle and bustle. You really are secluded. It is quiet. It is serene. Well, let's get down to a definition of wellness then because it's sort of like ecotourism was five years ago. Everyone wants to use the word, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has wellness now. What does it mean to you? Wellness, balance. It means balance. It is from what you're taking internally to what you're putting on your skin to how you're speaking, how you're being present, what you're doing for yourself, what we do. At but the not just in the moment, but as a matter of lifestyle. Correct. And being in this environment, the constant hustle bustle, you do have to take that time to be present and take care of yourself in terms of the concept of wellness. And we're living life here. We were 100 miles a minute, but then we also need to take that time back. And what the chat wall and the Red Door Spa offer is that time to take back for yourself, whether it be 50 minutes to have a beautiful massage with aromatherapy that allows you to recharge, uh, ordering a wellness dish from the Lambs Club. So it's incorporating the internal component of wellness. So the different departments of the hotel are actually talking to each other. Correct. All right. So Audrey, I've got a question for you. And this is my other devil's advocate's hitting. How many times have I gone to a resort or hotel where they say, oh, you have a massage at 11 o'clock in the morning or two in the afternoon. I don't want one at 11 o'clock in the morning. I don't want one at two in the afternoon. I want one at 10 o'clock at night because when they're done, I'm done. Right. Do you guys do late night stuff? We are um, in the process of incorporating more uh, contractors from the Red Door. Uh, one of the great things is the relationship that we have with the Fifth Avenue location makes things very accessible in terms of flexibility and application to the guest's needs. Um, to tail end with the difference, the point of difference in the experience. When you come down to the chat wall spa, you're taking an elevator, and as you go down, you're actually disconnecting from everything. It's very quiet, and I think part of the experience, part of the service that we offer that makes us so different is the environment that you're in. You are not with a group. You are not changing in a locker room with other guests you're actually in your own private vanity suite 
with your own shower, with your own mirror, with your own cabinetry. Not bad. And we have safes available for your private belongings when but you go into service. But you're not in a locker service. room. You're not in a locker room. I love no. that idea. And guests are always welcome to join us for the amenities. So another point of difference, you don't have to be having a service to be enjoying a wellness experience. You can be simply taking a plunge in our saltwater lap pool. You can be utilizing the steam showers. It's a not- saltwater lap pool on 44th Street. Yes, sir. Not bad. Yeah. Now we just got to do that at 11 o'clock at night. Can we work on that? We work on that consistently. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. I, I love it when, and, and charge extra for it, because I just love the idea that at the end of the day, you really just want to decompress. Actually, we do have the availability to come. Hotel guests have access to the spa at their convenience. Check for one family, one contact the park. Contact the park, slide obey, go forward to the three, adios. AMAX 403, contact the park, sir, adios. Over to Parsons, 171, awesome job. Joining me now, the person who's responsible for here in New York. He's the vice president, I love this, of the luxury division of Hampshire Hotels. Ashish Verma, how are you, sir? Thank you very much. Now, Ashish and I, in the interest of full disclosure, have known each other since you were the general manager of another one of my favorite hotels here in New York, the Lowell, which distinguished itself because it's one of the few hotels that I can think of in America where you have working fireplaces in in those rooms. That's true, indeed. And and you you have a fireplace butler. They actually come up and start the fire for you. So, you know, you wait till it's like really cold in New York and snowy and it, it's got the word cuddly written all over it. That's when you check into the Lowell. But here you are at the Chotwell, which is a hotel that has even more history. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's something which is so special, Peter. It bridges the classic and contemporary like no other hotel I know. Built in 1905 with the history with Stanford White and so appropriately uh, recognizing the era of Art Deco, the visionary entrepreneur, our owner, Mr. Chatwall, Mr. San Chatwall, brought in theory Despont. And he couldn't have done better with a designer and a dear decorator architect. Well, one of his challenges had to be, how do you make it technically up to speed without ruining it aesthetically? Absolutely. It's a landmark building. It's historically preserved. So we have many elements, both the exterior, the that facade. That even if you wanted to touch, you couldn't. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And we're delighted not to because we preserve history. And like I said, it bridges the classic and contemporary like no other. And we fear your despond the best designer in the world, hands down. He has really made this hotel shine with timeless elegance of the interior with the Art Deco inspiration. You know, I've seen so many hotels, and I'm sure you have too, that were existing buildings with a great history where they hired a designer to come in who decided he was going to impose his design as opposed to embrace what was there. And it doesn't work for me. It's, it, in fact, it's style over substance to the point where I don't even know what, what, what the toilet looks like. Absolutely. You have to recognize the city, the neighborhood, and that's what Theory did, the history of the building. He, he enhanced it. He did not just impose his own personal style. He actually incorporated what the Lambs Club was and made the chat wall something which blends the timeless elegance. And when he did that, what was his biggest challenge? I think it would be how he seamlessly transcends it. So when you look at the building from outside, the classic elegance of the building, when you arrive in the lobby, there is this Art Deco-inspired beautiful clock, the furnishings, the furniture, and you feel that, yes, there are these two eras meeting right in the middle, and how he seamlessly 
did it probably was but then when he finished we all recognized that he's a genius and he kept the art deco style yes indeed and and i said this earlier in the show but it bears repeating when i opened the fr- first of all you don't really know what you're about to see until you open the front door of the hotel i don't know if that was intentional or not but it, it's the reality and then when you walk in at least in my experience whatever you're going to do you do it in lower tones yes. you see the volume goes down and one appropriate word for the chat wall is an oasis Right in the middle. But that sounds like a bad brochure. Come on. (laughs) I mean, but the point is, it is a surprise. Yes. I'll put it that way. Oasis might be something that's, you know, coincidental. But for me, it's just, okay, here it is on 44th with all this activity and traffic and craziness and stuff. And I mean, nonstop. And then you open the door and it's like, oh, hello. Yes. And that is the context, you know, I was implying because uh, it's so quiet. It's so understated. It's so sophisticated. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.